0: Hello everyone, welcome to the second episode of The Node. Our first order of business today will be to take care of some housekeeping, as they say. I wanna talk a little bit about the last episode with Cole. After talking with Cole and a few other friends, it came to my attention how much of a barrier finances and income can be when we're talking about things like voting with your money. If this is totally alien to you, I invite you to please listen to the last episode. I do, however, just want to acknowledge, for those of you who did listen to the first episode, that this is definitely something that's on our mind and deserves attention. In itself, this is actually a great conversation piece, thinking about what kind of underrepresentation low-income households might have in the market. Anyway, we can save that for later. This podcast, I really enjoyed recording. This is an interview with Bree Shulman. Bree's a really good friend of mine. She is the program therapist for Inner Roads, a nonprofit wilderness therapy program. She was my boss, my mentor. I could say a lot more, but I think the episode will speak for itself. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can help us out by recommending it to a friend or someone that you think may be interested. You can rate it and review it in your podcast app. You can donate at the tip jar which is at the bottom of the show notes. Any of those things would be great and would be super helpful. I really hope you enjoy this. Thank you for listening to the node. Today we're talking with Bree Schulman. Bri is a licensed clinical professional counselor. She's also the program therapist at Inner Roads, which is a wilderness therapy program in Missoula, Montana. She's a mentor, an advocate for youth from challenging circumstances, and a really good friend of mine. Welcome to the podcast, Bree.
1: Thanks, Steven. It's good to be here.
0: Awesome. Do you want to start out by telling us a little bit about Inner Roads?
1: Sure. Um... Yeah, so we're uh, a wilderness therapy program that is a nonprofit, which is pretty unique. I don't know of many others in the um, in the country, and we work with kids mostly throughout Montana who are um, living at or around the poverty line, and we're using outdoor therapy as a way to help kids. Um, basically recognize that they're worth more than they thought they were and that they're capable of more than they thought they were. Um, And I think once people have that awareness, they can apply that to anything they want to do or need to get out of as well.
0: Uh, Okay. So you're talking about learning to be self-sufficient a little bit? Is that where the wilderness part comes in?
1: Yeah, the wilderness part comes in Uh, Gosh, constantly. I think a big piece of it is that um, the wilderness doesn't have any judgment if Mm -hmm. it rains on you. It's not because it's mad at you. Yeah. Um, And whether or not you stay dry has to do with how much um, accountability or empowerment you utilize. So there's that. And then with that, you get immediate feedback as well for if what you're doing is working or not working both in your physical comfort and then your emotional comfort too, because you're out there with such a small intimate group of people Mm -hmm. that um, it's very clear how your actions impact your environment socially and and naturally.
0: Okay. What are some of the places that comes up? I mean, I'm thinking being outside, whether or not you get wet, what kind of skills are necessary to learn out there uh, to keep from getting wet? What, what are these kids going through out there?
1: I think one of the biggest things is um, that we're working on is more of a uh, kind of a neuroscience level of um, building executive functioning. Mm -hmm. I mean, we know teenagers are just starting on that um, kind of cognitive journey anyway, but the kids we're working with, because of their histories of trauma or um, lack of access to food um, as a youth or substance use or, you know, high cortisol levels, they are even further behind in developing executive functioning. Mm -hmm. And that's the functioning we need in order to be able to plan or anticipate what we need to do next in order to take care of ourselves, stay safe, get our needs met. Okay. So a lot of the skills that we're doing out there are kind of simplified, step-by-step activities where people can recognize, if I do A, then B will happen, and mm-hmm. if B, then C, and ultimately D. Um, and a main example of this we use a lot is um, making friction fires. Yeah. We call it bow drilling, and or I mean, it, it, the method is bow drilling that we use. We call it busting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I this statistic is certainly made up, but I think for a while now, and I buy into it, it's like... 20% uh, physical effort and 80% preparation. Mm-hmm. And I think um, kids are able to kind of take that process and apply it to everything from um, romantic relationships to applying to to college or trade school, to how they're gonna move out of their house into a safer environment, or how they're gonna rebuild their, their relationship with their parents.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'll ride the line between pretending Like, I don't know anything about interroads and remembering what I did out there, but busting is definitely challenging. And even if you can get a spark, you're not, if you don't have all the preparation necessary, you're not going to be able to make a fire. And that goes for days in advance if it's raining, like you're talking about. You need to make sure you have dry materials. And so, yeah, I can definitely see how that would build up those executive functioning skills, planning skills when you're having to account for whether or not you're going to make a fire and which would be your warmth and your food that night, whether or not you can build a shelter to stay dry, all of that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the shelters that we use, you know, um, are made out of tarps and the kids have um, really embraced the fact that you can make some pretty cool hammocks out of tarp shelters, you know, if you fold the tarp over and use a clove hitch at each end, you can hang it up and sleep in it. Right. And we constantly get the question, can I sleep in a hammock tonight? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's under a shelter. And so it's always a question of, well, you know, what do we know from looking, you know, at the surroundings and at the weather? And also, what do we not know? Right. That we need to take consideration in, in making a decision to keep ourselves safe tonight.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I imagine that can be super empowering to the individual that learns how to pay attention to the weather and take care of all these necessary elements so that, I mean, at the end of the program, are they essentially operating? I mean, I'm sure it depends on the kid, but operating at a level where they could probably go out by themselves and live in the woods for a week or so. I'm sure that's an empowering experience.
1: Yeah, I, I think that, you know, in the in a safe enough environment, and if the kid, you know, demonstrates their skills um, to do so, there's plenty of kids who I would, you know, invite to go try that or go with a friend. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of our kids go on to do trail crew stuff, okay. too, so shifting from a treatment model to now being employees because of the skill set that they have. Yeah. Uh, like through Montana Conservation Corps, for example. It's an mm-hmm. awesome program. So... They definitely learn a lot about taking care of themselves and what's needed to do that. And also, I think one of the biggest pieces through that process is also learning about when it's appropriate to ask for help. Right. Um, Some of our kids come in feeling completely helpless and think they can't do anything. Mm -hmm. uh, And so they need to learn to try before asking for help. And then we've got other kids who don't trust that humans have anything to offer them because of their traumatic background um yeah they don't like they're worth being helped
0: i think that's a hard one for a lot of us i mean that seems like a huge lesson to learn as a kid and as an adult and Mm -hmm. yeah moving from kind of the wilderness survival learning the skills aspects i'm sure going from this place where you're learning to ask for help learning that you need help and moving into a work environment like trail crew I'm sure interacting with the other people has got to be a huge part of this as well,
1: yeah, absolutely. I think you know it translates directly to school too. So many of our kids are struggling in academic settings for a variety of reasons, and having them realize um that it's okay to have certain you know certain areas of your life that you need support in. And how to ask for that help while, while maintaining self-respect, right. maybe even respect yourself more um, because you're vulnerable. Mm-hmm. I think that's a big piece of what folks are taking away, too, is that strength isn't um, being, you know, I don't know, strength isn't being, you know, immortal, mm-hmm. right? It's about, it's about being strong enough to be vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and creating space for other people to do that too.
0: Yeah. Yeah, in a in a way it's kind of learning how to most efficiently learn. Yeah, and keeping in mind the other people and how they're helping you and how you're helping them. So when you yeah. when you take on a client, I mean, part of your job is going through and seeing who's going to be in the program. So when you take on a client, what's your what's your end goal? Does it differ by who you're taking on or is there something that you would like all students of Interroads to learn?
1: Yeah, that's such a good question. Um, I think both there are some overarching pieces that I want every kid to take with them, and then on top of that, the treatment is individualized. so if somebody comes in, for example, with you know bipolar disorder versus coming in with a history of you know being abused by Authority. There's going to be some different specific um, treatment goals we're working on. Um, the abuse might be more about mm-hmm. kind of uh, feeling safe in relationships and how to how to identify a safe relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with bipolar, it might look more like building emotional regulation skills. Um, but the fact of the matter is, both of those people mm-hmm. need to know both of those things. Right, we need to know how to have healthy relationships right. and we need to know how to emotionally regulate. Um, so everybody's learning the same things, and some people are boosted up by some material more than others. Ultimately, the two things, um, that I kind of mentioned that I think I, I the reason that I fell in love with wilderness therapy is because it was my experience that, um, <laughs> accidentally surviving in the wilderness proved to me that I was worth more than I thought I was and that I was capable of more than I thought I was. And the, I'm very confident that you couldn't have told me anything to make me believe that. I had to experience it to believe it. Yeah. Um, so I think that's what we do with these kids who are really truly hopeless a lot of times their their parents are too um, they don't have to believe me mm-hmm. they just have to be and, yeah. and they'll prove themselves wrong essentially
0: that's awesome do you want to talk a little bit about that experience that you had that's kind of analogous to the experience that kids are having at inner roads that sounds yeah, like a good story it's
1: not too analogous <laughs> because I would say it's okay Yeah, it it wasn't safe, and um, it wasn't intentional, um, which is maybe a couple pretty big differences from wilderness therapy, but um, certainly there was overlap. It's kind of a long story, but the the shortest version of it is that I um, had never been backpacking before when I was 21 years old and went with... Someone who I had a huge crush on, who had a huge uh, background in in backpacking and going all over the world, and just super independent. And um, mm-hmm. this was in the Adirondacks um, in upstate New York. So we went uh, in um, August. Ended up getting separated, um, which was a yeah. That's that's its own thing. So I ended up getting separated, um, because he wanted to hike further, and I was maxed out. Um, and ended up getting lost overnight in, like, a rainstorm, wearing all cotton, and he had all of the gear. Um, he had
0: food and everything, yeah. because he
1: was the stronger hiker, so he was going to carry everything. Um, so yeah. I ended up getting um, hypothermia, and... Um, pretty scary experience, but after um, a couple of weeks, really, of kind of processing and really telling that story to people, and people asking me questions to help me, I don't know if it was their intention, but it helped me process, and kind of told my story over and over, Mm -hmm. I realized that the the thing I was attracted to about that individual was um, certainly not the individual themselves. They were, um, yeah they
0: need the <laughs> they needed the social skills yeah, that you learn exactly. in Roads. They, they missed that part. yeah, they just went straight to
1: solo. Um, but what I was really attracted to and um, I don't know what quite what the word is but engaged with mm-hmm. was the activities that they did the, the independence, um, the ability to explore and the confidence to have that ability to explore. Um, mm-hmm. and it was interesting. I realized that that confidence was mitigating the depression that I was struggling with. Okay. Recognizing, you know, so much of the hopelessness that I had struggled with for, for a decade. It wasn't necessarily true that I had to be stuck. There were some things that I could do that I just didn't know I could do yet.
0: So surviving this kind of pulled you out?
1: It It, it definitely... It put me on the track, um and I would say that it's absolutely been my own treatment is participating in uh wilderness therapy because there's so many parallels as you know between being a field staff or a provider and a kid. you're going through the same rainy bad attitude trap there,
0: yeah. The same emotional stuff is well. I mean, not the same, but you're sitting in the same circles, talking about and thinking about the same things.
1: Absolutely, and I um and I have to I have to be there. I have to keep everybody safe because it's it's my job, and they're humans, and I need to keep them safe. Yeah. You know? You know? Um. So <laughs> yeah. That was really the biggest parallel with um operating inner roads as an independent nonprofit. It was. A strange parallel where, mm-hmm. in, um, Christmas of 2017, I went to my hometown and was talking with family about inner roads because I'd already worked there a few years, and yeah. a few different people in my life asked if I would ever run, you know, my own or an independent wilderness program and operate it, and I said, absolutely not. Like, I I can't do that. My brain doesn't do that. Um mm-hmm. You know, I have ADHD. I don't organize. It's just not going to happen. I don't do that. Mm-hmm. And a week later, it turns out that the program um, was cut from all funding and was going to be dissolved. And you're what, a
0: field staff at this point?
1: Um, I was a therapist at this point.
0: Okay. Okay. That makes sense.
1: With no director experience in anything ever. Um, and I guess. You know, the upsides of ADHD and impulsiveness is that sometimes you jump into things even when you're not Mm confident. So, you know, I said absolutely like we can't let this go. Um, it's the only not profit, it's the only wilderness therapy program in Montana. It's the only it's the only option for so many people. So I bought the name inner roads for ten dollars and work with some people to accrue a bunch of gear, and thought to myself, I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing, and I shouldn't be doing this, and I can't do this, and I didn't sleep for maybe like three weeks. Oh no. And then one day it occurred to me that every, every single day of myself being a field staff in the last you know 10, 12 years has been telling kids you're capable of more than you think you are. You just have to do it to know that. Um, so if I were to not try, that would be pretty hypocritical and I think undermining of the effort that I've asked so many kids to do over the years. So here we are. We're trying it. It's not. <laughs> it's it's not necessarily through um, <laughs> hiking. It feels a little bit more like bushwhacking, but but we're out there. We're doing it. We're learning as we go.
0: Yeah. No, that's that's so awesome and I'm sure that this program is going to do nothing but benefit from somebody who's so invested personally in the experience of wilderness therapy. I just want to jump back really quick because this seems like a hugely significant thing that we just kind of blew <laughs> over. How did you survive hypothermia on your own in the Adirondacks? Um, no.
1: I mean, luckily, I think just luckily it was, um, I mean, I think if my body dropped, you know, another degree lower, it could have, um, had a very different ending, but, um, I just kind of, I shivered and came in and out of consciousness through the night. I remember, you know, my ability to, to, to think clearly or problem solve was, um, really ridiculous. I mean, I remember at one point I was so cold that I really had to pee, and I knew the pee was warm, and so I figured I'd use it to warm myself, so I like peed in in my empty water bottle Mm -hmm. and then poured some of it on the ground and laid in it to keep myself warm, Mm -hmm. and then drank the rest of it. Um, Dang. So laying in it was warm for about 30 seconds, and then I just smelled like cold piss. Uh and you can imagine, I was, so I had hiked 16 miles with no water at this point. I didn't know that, but that's,
2: wow. I,
1: I knew I didn't have water, but, um, <laughs> so you can imagine that that urine wasn't necessarily filled with, um, all the water that I would have needed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there was that, and, um, yeah, in the morning, um, At one point, I just, yeah, I stopped and I laid down because it was too dark. I couldn't see. And I knew if I took a step off a path, then then the next day would be even less possible. Were Um, you still
0: hiking out or were you hiking back at this point?
1: Well, if I knew the answer to that, I probably wouldn't have spent the night.
0: You didn't know. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man. That's terrible.
1: Yeah, no, I was very lost.
0: Did somebody find you?
1: No. Um... I I knew that downhill had to be the right direction because uphill wasn't going to get me to um, a parking lot. And um, so I figured I would just keep going down mm-hmm. and eventually find my way to a parking lot and then um, several parking lots along the same road through the Adirondacks and I'd hitch a ride. or That was as far as the thought process went. And um, I did end up mm-hmm. coming down into a parking lot um, the next day. <laughs> There's so many parts of the story that are just wild. Um, but I came down and there was a, a ranger in his jeep. Yeah. And he asked, you know, oh, are you Brie Shulman? And I was like, Yep. And he goes, Oh, we started looking for you last night, but then it got dark. So thanks for showing up today. Oh man. So there was that. Um, and got in his car smelling like hot. Hiss. He gave me some water though, so that was nice. There was a part though uh, <laughs> of this journey where, when I when I laid down to kind of just stop, you know, try to stop being further lost, I took my socks off because my f- they, my feet were so it was raining. It's the only time there's been tornadoes in New York that I'm aware of happened that, so there was really windy rain. Um, okay soaking wet, all cotton. Oh, man. And, yeah, and my, my, I have really poor circulation, so I took the wet socks off in hopes to reduce the cold direct contact to my toes. And then, in the you know, when I started hiking again, I had, it forgot about them. I didn't put them on. And so at some point, when I got all the way back down to kind of ground, mm-hmm. the, you know, water level, I stopped to drink some water from a creek, and my feet were just, like, slashing in water from being wet, and I took my shoes off, and it wasn't water, it was just blood, because I had been hiking for hours without socks, with this adrenaline rush. Um and so I, my, yeah, I couldn't wear oh, shoes man. for about two, for about two months, maybe, after, sneakers, I should say, I could wear sandals.
0: Okay. Yeah. And... This was your first backpacking trip? <laughs> yeah. And then you decided to do that for a career?
1: <sighs> yeah.
0: how did you how did you get into wilderness therapy I had so as a teenager I went
1: to a lot of therapists and um, and that's kind to share Mm -hmm. so yeah I went um, so a lot of therapists Mm -hmm. I would say they all um, sucked pretty bad and didn't it was almost like it was very dismissive it's like oh if you're a teenager you're just having teenager feelings Okay, you know, well, those feelings are stronger than you'll have at any other point in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I think they are some of the ones that need to be the most validated because they are some of the most defining moments, you know, yeah, so um, I thought well, so so I had that poor experience which made me want to be a counselor, and I said, I'll be a therapist. I'll work with teenagers because I'll actually you know remember what it's like which I try to do. I can't do it perfectly because my brain's very different, but I, I try to remember that. Yeah. And then I also liked, to, I had gone car camping with my family and with friends um, around upstate New York and just always absolutely loved it. Um, and so I thought, you know, I should just, we, sh- we should just get kids camping together and talking around a fire. Um, and then in college I was working at a residential, um, like, a, a therapeutic group home for a geriatric population and was just looking online. I typed in the words outdoor mm-hmm. therapy, and it turns out it's a thing, and I am not creating anything new. <laughs> um, in fact, no one is, seeing as we start all started outside. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I saw that. There was a place that was hiring in Utah um and i applied and got the job and quickly learned that you're never supposed to wear cotton or drink your own pee (laughs) Uh,
0: i i don't know drinking your pee might be a good idea at some points
1: at some points yeah i don't know that i was there yet okay um but I mean, I actually, like, I had half a granola bar, but instead of eating it, I hid it in a tree. Okay. So that it would be there in the morning, so I could have something to eat tomorrow, mm-hmm. even though I'm, like, surrounded by squirrels and raccoon I tried to pet. And...
0: Intuitive bear hang.
1: Intuitive bear hang. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it was there the next morning, which was incredible. Um, I don't know why yeah, nature threw me a bone. Then.
0: Yeah, well, I, I'm glad you found your granola bar thank you so you started working in utah yep. how and so how many years did you work in utah before you made it back to missoula made it to missoula
1: uh, i've bounced back and forth a few times when i worked in vermont for a little while in between okay. it was 2008 when i um first worked in wilderness therapy and as a field staff and that's when okay. i found warfare as well it was during yeah. a training
0: yeah so Woofers, is your puppy she's my puppy do you want to tell the woofer story uh sure we can make we can probably get hot dog day to be a thing that
1: oh my gosh should that be like a fundraiser for like wilderness therapy or, or maybe abused dogs yeah hot dog both. Day. both
2: hot dog day yeah, um,
1: yeah i went I was, I was in utah um and then we did a training in southern idaho for Mm backcountry medicine, and the training is called uh, Wilderness First Responder, and Mm -hmm. while I was out there in the middle of nowhere, this dog showed up, and I've always been a dog person, so this dog showed up but was clearly very afraid of us, but was um, definitely really emaciated, kind of, just kind of trying to eat our scraps and things that was left around, and uh, I would try to approach her and she would run away. Um, but then she would always stay within like kind of 20 feet, just kind of watching. And so, you know, she would take like one step forward and then I would take a step forward and then she'd take off. Um, and then one night we were, uh, of this training, we were making hot dogs over the fire and I thought, well, the dog's hungry. Um, maybe this is a way I'll lure her in. Um, because for whatever reason, I was like, mm-hmm. I must touch this dog. So, yeah. So she ate the hot dog out of my hand. And that was June 11th, 2008, which is uh, now hot dog day.
0: June 11th.
1: June 11th. So from that moment, um, she's been my best friend. Um, she she hung around. She slept next to mm-hmm. me that night. Oh, wow. Um, and, Yeah put her in the car when it was time to go, and she jumped out of the car, and I put her in the car again, and then she stayed. Um, And, yeah, now she's 14, and she has been a field staff with me um, in every program that I've worked for. And she's really great to have out there to show the kids what it can look like for someone to come from um, abuse and neglect. And rebuild uh, trust mm-hmm. in relationships and actually um, really bring a lot of joy to a lot of people's lives. So she, she's a good representation of that.
0: Yeah. Well, she's such a sweet dog. And, I mean, dogs are a great example of this, too. I mean, dogs are people, too. And you can see when when you're around dogs that have been abused or neglected, if they haven't had the chance to repair those behaviors and ways of viewing the world, you can tell yeah. through their behavior.
1: Yeah, I use that parallel a lot when a kid comes in with a diagnosis like ODD, Oppositional Defiant Disorder, um, mm-hmm. basically means that they have a pathological response to authority. However, there's, mm-hmm. there's always a reason for that. And unsurprisingly, the number mm-hmm. one treatment for that is parent training. Yeah. <laughs> so have you tried approaching the kid differently, you know? Um, but the way, you know, th- these kids come in with this really negative stigma that they're just like, they're bad kids, they're troublemakers, nothing you will do will kind of satisfy them, and they're actively trying to to make other people's lives worse. Mm-hmm. But the parallel I see with it is if you've got if you go into an animal shelter and you see um, a dog in the shelter that looks a little nervous and you want to go over and say hi to it, and it steps backward from the, from the gate, but you've got a treat and you want to give it a treat to pull it in like I did with Woofer, right? So you're like, no, i got a treat for you, and you lean in and the dog takes another step back. And you're like, no, I promise, you're going to like this. I know you're afraid of people. I'm going to be the reason you need change. I'm going to come in even closer, and I'm going to open the gate door. I'm going to step into the space, and I'm going to really just put this in your face. And now the dog is backed up into a corner. Mm -hmm. At some point, the dog only has so many choices for how to defend itself.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: It doesn't understand your intention. Right. Uh, And so that's where we see Mm -hmm. kids. I would say biting. Yeah. Right. Or or being aggressively reactive is they operate at a, a level of feeling extremely threatened at all times. And so in wilderness therapy it's never about forcing. It's always about inviting. Um and creating a space for somebody to make a decision on their own. Mm-hmm. So if you don't want to participate in group therapy, that's fine. You can sit off to the side and you'll just notice what it's like for everybody else who's participating and having a conversation around the fire. And you might start to sit a little bit closer and just kind of listen in participating.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a really interesting way to put it. It's like they haven't or their reactions have popped up because of the way that their environment is. And yeah, that's Really kind of draws out what you're doing with wilderness therapy in that when you take them out of this environment that leaves them no choice but to be biting no choice to but to be reacting to people and then giving them the space to make those decisions for themselves and see see how to interact with adults that they can trust and people that are supportive of them
1: yeah, yeah that's
0: a really that's a really good example,
1: yeah. I mean, I think people need to have enough space to not trust. You know, I always tell because you shouldn't, you shouldn't trust me. You don't know me. I'm a stranger. We're going into the forest together. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. If you're just like, yeah, totally, we're going, then I'm a little bit worried about your dis- <laughs> decision-making process, right? Yeah. I want you to, to be curious about whether or not you have contact with your parents. I want you to be curious about a grievance form and how to make sure that you're heard and you're safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, And, you know, a lot of those kids don't have that capacity yet. We're working on building that executive functioning. But I'm never going to tell a kid to trust me because they shouldn't. A lot of them shouldn't. Um, There's no reason to. I haven't suggested myself as being trusted yet.
0: So how long are they out there to build these kind of relationships and skills, build that trust?
1: So, the evidence based model um that's been researched extensively over the last like fifteen years, what they're they're finding is that forty two days mm-hmm. seems to be a pretty prime um amount of time for the brain to do some um, neural network development that creates long lasting change, okay um, which can be particularly helpful for something like addictions, yeah. You certainly can get work done in a shorter period of time, and that's going to be looking more at, um, you know, building some of those coping skills and some strategies that kind of supplement whatever it is that's going on inside of your brain. Right. Um, so um, the inter roads program, we're usually five weeks long. This year we're going to um, do things a little bit differently in order to um, – Accommodate fast changes with the coronavirus. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to kind of increase the intensity mm-hmm. um, by having some you know, more experienced and directive people out there mm-hmm. um, right from the get-go. And we're also going to really increase the um, intensity of the parent programming Okay. Um, to make sure it's very clear to the parents that they are a key player in whether or not this creates long-term impact or not.
0: Yeah, that seems really key. And that's one of the things I've found really cool about Inner Roads is that they incorporate the parents in the equation and I mean it's a like a family-wide approach. Does that does that come from your background in family therapy or how did how did that get added to the mix?
1: That Came from a few different things. Um, I mean, so most wilderness therapy programs have a family component, and this okay. this letter writing is a really common piece. Okay. Because um, it can be so much safer to be vulnerable to say things that you need to say, mm-hmm. whether it's to hold your parent accountable or to hold yourself accountable, and, and share that information. Yeah. So, um, you know, I saw that technique when I started in two thousand and eight. Okay. Um, I very aware of my own teenage experience having a family component that um, that wasn't addressed. Mm-hmm. I don't know how it would have been to address it, but it was absolutely a significant component. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a huge a huge part of relationships and how you learn relationships in general as your primary caregivers or your parents growing up. Exactly. So.
1: Yeah, and when I talk to parents, I let them know that this is not a send-your-kid-away-to-get-fixed situation at all. Yeah. Um, And I tell the parents, you know, if you want – they'll ask, is this – you know, how successful is this? Mm-hmm. So I'll say a couple of things. I'll usually say, first of all, that depends on what you do. Right. Um, and – the other pieces, I'll say, you know, if you've got a family, say you've got, um, you know, a mom and, you know, and another parent and two kids, for example. So then you've got maybe your family of four. Mm-hmm. And the parents decide that they're going to send Jimmy to do this program. Um, then I think about it as, yeah, your family is this puzzle piece of four and if you send Jimmy's puzzle piece into the forest to work on shifting his shape into a shape that's more functional, mm-hmm. the only way he can maintain that new functional shape and rejoin the family is if those three pieces that interact with his piece mm-hmm. change their shape just enough to allow for that that new shape to sustain. Yeah. Otherwise, they're going to fall right back into where he was.
0: Yeah, that seems like harder to do in some ways than working with jimmy i mean
1: absolutely yeah way less control over it way less um they have way less experience you know um so one thing we do to kind of um, address that is provide family therapy um trips. So like at the end of the trip, everybody's been practicing their skills. Um, you know, the kid in the field, the parent with the parent therapist. And then we have a three day kind of combination where, um, myself and the field staff go out with that family and practice doing a lot of what the kids been doing out there the whole time. Um, like having vulnerable conversations around the fire, um, creating friction fires together, getting frustrated together. Yeah. Um, asking each other for help asking each other for space Mm -hmm. you know applying all of those pieces Um, and more and more wilderness therapy programs are incorporating these these multi-day family therapy trips to integrate the skills
0: that seems like a really good idea
1: they're awesome it's really fun
0: yeah one of the other things i wanted to talk to you about is secondary trauma and staff fatigue out there we were kind of talking earlier about backing somebody up into a corner to the point where what they do is bite and i'm sure you have six kids out there at a time and just for you over a whole career of working with people that have these reactive behaviors that are necessarily social and affecting other people i mean how does that affect you On a personal level and how do you through your career manage this i mean i'm sure i'm sure there's professional ways to approach this and it's part of the part of the field generally but i think that's a big can of worms we could open
1: (laughs) yeah that is a can of, of of like the tremors worm but super relevant um so there's different different Um, types of stressors that come with different positions in wilderness therapy for sure, Mm -hmm. and um, with the field staff having the most direct contact um, with the kids, you know, your number one tool um, as a field staff is your relationship, which Mm -hmm. requires vulnerability on your part, and anytime vulnerable, you're opening yourself to someone else's pain as well. And so, um, that is something that we're always doing training with about right. staff on kind of setting boundaries. What's, you know, how much of yourself is appropriate to make available uh, to provide support and how can you support without, um, right. you know, how can you be there for somebody without mm-hmm. making it about yourself without sharing your own experience? Um, so that's a big piece. Um, processing is huge. So, um, you know, staff talking with each other mm-hmm. at night, um, talking with our program director Tara after um, each shift to kind of make sense. I mean, that's really what what trauma. Trauma is when we've experienced, um, you know, a strong fear and powerlessness at the same time. Um, and it can become a disorder or manifest itself in you if you never get to. So yeah, everybody experiences things that are traumatic. Not everybody internalizes it and has it live inside of them. Um, and the way to make it not live inside of us is to process it, which there are a lot of different evidence-based ways of doing. Um, but uh, sometimes talking about it is super effective. That's why talk therapy works in of itself. Um, So talking with each other about your experiences out there is huge versus keeping it in um, or feeling shame as if we're not supposed to have certain feelings about the work we're doing or frustration with different kids. Yeah. And then I learned that there's a pretty important distinction between compassion fatigue and burnout um, where Mm -hmm. burnout is more about your professional – your experience as a professional in any setting. Uh, yeah. And I real I I learned that the number one deciding factor in burnout is your perception of whether or not you're supported mm-hmm. in your work. Your perception of it. Uh, so feeling like my boss and my coworkers have my back. Right. How I'm doing matters is mm-hmm. a deciding factor in sustainability for saying I'm exhausted. Um but i'm still gonna do it versus i'm exhausted
0: and screw this yeah right yep Um, oh i was just gonna say that when i worked for you that's one thing that i recognized about inner roads as being unique from a lot of other places i've worked in that staff and yeah just the the system supporting you is very much there for you and seems very conscious of this, which I think that's really cool that you've made that happen. But what were you saying about what's compassion fatigue? So compassion fatigue
1: is more so in in the healthcare provider world Mm -hmm. where you are constantly exposed to traumatic things and making yourself available
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, to be there kind of with somebody while they're going through something really hard. And what it can end up doing is um, mm-hmm. it can end up, we can end up kind of numbing ourselves because we have to. Yeah. You
2: know,
1: there's times if you think about in kind of a microcosm where, you know, there's there's been days in my life where I've cried so hard for two hours that when I finally stop, I almost feel kind of numb. And... There's relief in that numbness. Mm -hmm. However, that numbness—we see that with with teachers and healthcare providers, where they still believe in what they're doing, but for whatever reason, they like cannot access that empathy anymore.
2: Yeah.
1: Um. So that's a separate piece that needs to be tended to. Um, through setting those personal boundaries. Right. Things like getting at least seven hours of sleep at night so your brain can process mm-hmm. um, yesterday so that you don't carry yesterday into today with you. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of little like day-to-day activities that are very much in your control with compassion fatigue. And with burnout, it's a balance of self-advocacy and being in an agency that supports and embraces your self-advocacy.
0: Yeah. No, those sound I I'm glad you brought up that distinction because they seem very relevant. Compassion fatigue particularly that just rings so many bells when I'm thinking about stories I've heard about um children's hospitals and school systems with what what seems to it seems to be stories about these I don't know, ghosts or just bystanders that seem to tend tend the flocks of children. And yeah. that's kind of... These like negative stories, I'm sure there's positive cases, I know there is, but that seems to paint a pretty dark picture when you're thinking about this on a bigger scale, when you're thinking about there's so many people building up this sort of rec- recalcitrance to dealing with other people's emotions and recognizing that they're in need of actual help help and compassion what so as the director of inner roads you're kind of dealing with a bigger system than most people how do you think how do you think that systems healthcare systems in general can be more aware of this and how can we deal with that so we're not we're not dealing with mass compassion fatigue and the negative externalities that result from that?
1: Yeah, great question. I mean, I think psychoeducation is a piece. I think mm-hmm. that um, in business manas- management you know, training, when people are going to business school, I think having um, psychoeducation about um, the emotional demands of of management, are going to be really appropriate, too. Um, there's, you, you know, there's workshops that people can attend on things like resiliency and burnout. Yeah. Um, and I also think it's really, again, a, a trickle-down effect of how do we, as an agency, how do we create the space for people right. to, self, to, to use self-care to manage their compassion? So, for example, I need to make sure that there is a chunk of time when I go into the field that the staff can just go take a break. Yeah. Right? It's it's up to them what they do as a break, but it's on me to create that space for them to do that. And so I, as a director, can directly impact whether or not um, my employees have an opportunity to, to manage compassion fatigue. And then I think another big piece about compassion fatigue is um, is communicating, you know, between between staff that c- that togetherness piece is so huge. And I think about love languages, and I think about with you, Stephen, when you are out there and knowing just that you've had yet another kind of wild, crazy week. It's like, what kind of dark chocolate are we gonna get for Stephen <laughs> this week? Yeah. Right? Um, so just knowing knowing your employees as you know as just as individuals too, and like what you like matters, um, yeah. feeds into back into that burnout piece of whether or not you're supported mm-hmm. in being compassionate every day. So the two, it's like a Venn diagram with a huge overlap, yeah. but little bits of, I would say, um, where the accountability lies can lie a little bit differently. Yeah. An agency versus the employee.
0: Yeah, I see what you're saying. It's almost it's it's kind of the on the agency to make sure that they're saying, Hey, we know this is a factor. Take the space that you need so that you can be fresh and then it's on each person individually to say, Okay, what do I need to do so that I can be refreshed and deal with other people's emotions and be be a competent employee so you
1: yeah it's me as an employee or employer to check in and say hey do you have methods of self-care that work for you or do you need help brainstorming yeah i don't know how to take care of myself can i have help
0: Mm -hmm. yeah that was part of my job interview with you guys i remember that very cool So you're a really good resource to ask about this, though, because you've been dealing with it your entire career. Is there any advice or specific things that you would say just generally to deal with these kinds of fatigue? I mean, obviously it's individualized, but is there anything particularly that you think is a good education tool as far as dealing with compassion fatigue? (laughs)
1: Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> um, you know, I think diversity in my roles helps, yeah. so I have – there's time that I'm, like, face-to-face with kids, and then there's times that I am, you know, talking with the parents, and then there's times that I am, you know, packing food and things like that. So having mm-hmm. kind of breaks like that is important, um, right. which is why certainly we see in the field the kids are out there for five weeks, but you're not. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we need the staff to have fresh energy. Um, Yeah. Coming in. So I think breaks are um, a huge piece. um, Mm Self-awareness is definitely a huge piece. And then for me, I would say um, my friends being there to believe in me when I'm having a hard time believing in myself, um, just like we do in the field when the kid is so sure they can't possibly take another step. And say so you can. It mm-hmm. just might not be on your timeline, but we're here with you. Mm-hmm. You know, while you while you sit through this and and while you take that next step. Okay. Um, so yeah, the, my my relationships have been uh, definitely the defining factor in my wellness. Throughout okay.
0: Yeah, that's, I'm I, that's a huge one, definitely, with all things in life.
1: It's tricky though because with my kind of work demand with the fact that I I do struggle with organization. I don't work super effectively, which means I work it, it takes me more time to do things. And then I have less time for those relationships that I need to be feeding my ability to fulfill this this uh, professional role. So okay. that the struggle is how do I how do I tend to those relationships? How do I not just use them, but tend to them and 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 feed those relationships while working extremely hard all the time. Um, right. And yeah, that's something that, you know, I'm slowly learning some boundaries on. I yeah, we're getting there.
0: Yeah. Well, you're in a unique position too because you've you've recently come into being the program therapist of Inner and the director of Inner and I think that's That's probably a really key, a really defining moment in a lot of people's careers and lives is just taking those steps. How has that affected you? I mean, you were talking about it a little bit. It's a lot to handle. But, yeah, how has it affected you stepping into this really big role? What have you learned from that, too?
1: Oh, yeah. What have I learned? Um, It's been hard. It's been really hard. Um, I, when I lose my energy to do it, or my hopefulness, because there's so many bureaucracies, you know, that get in the way, and hmm. healthcare agencies that say they want to help, but they actually create obstacles, you know, Okay. Um, when I get into those places and feel really hopeless, um, I'm able to re- reflect on the kids who I still have a relationship with who completed the program, or the, you know, the kids who I, I know experienced some life-changing success, and I know that there are other kids out there who haven't yet, who felt um, as hopeless, or maybe more hopeless than I did as a teenager, And Mm -hmm. so I think for me, when I am feeling completely over it, um, I just have to do it for somebody else and not for me. Yeah. You know, so sometimes I'm doing things because I'm excited and it energizes me. And sometimes I do it because I have to because nobody else is doing it.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, that kind of goes back to when you first took Inner Roads and bought the name for $10. Saying that y- yeah. you really needed to, I mean, in a way, you did it because that's what you would expect of the kids, and so, yeah. and yeah, pulling that together for them is huge. I imagine.
1: I met. I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Well, I, you know, just looking at the healthcare system on on top of this, you know, yeah. I um don't have I don't have Medicaid coverage. um and so I um, have to pay kind of out of pocket until I meet my deductible to find a therapist for myself. Oh I
2: don't wow expense
1: that I don't necessarily I, 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 you know you don't make enough money right now, Tara and I are working, we cut our salary seventy five percent in order Mm -hmm. to keep some money in the account to be able to buy the food when we start the season. Oh, wow. So it's been been hard to kind of get my needs met. Um, And that's where I really have to remember if I ever find myself falling into almost like a martyr mindset or an I deserve, you know, the box styles, right? Yeah. I deserve mindset is that I'm lucky enough that I get to choose this battle every day hmm you know yeah,
0: yeah well I'm, i mean you,
1: I'm choosing this.
0: you're choosing it and you're also you and tara are kind of the ones that are out there on the limb and like you're saying you're having to deal with everything that is in the way of taking care of these kids whether it's whether it's insurance or other bureaucracies i mean yeah, yeah that's a lot that's a lot of responsibility i'm sure that I'm sure that's no easy load to carry. Yeah. I
1: mean, Tara has absolutely been, you know, the glue of holding all of these pieces together. You know, I'm here ready to march forward. And she's like, Bree, there's some. There's, <laughs> there's a way that that will work and there's a way that won't work. And she's been so much of the reason that it has worked, mm-hmm. um, which is also a huge piece for, for my mental health as we have. Um, an extremely strong working relationship that I think has been a deciding factor. That it was just kind of lucky. Yeah. That we that we both work together so well and have very different skill sets mm-hmm. while having very similar goals.
0: Yeah. Okay, so I know that Interroads is in high demand as far as people wanting to join the program and go out in the field, but it sounds like you're still struggling with getting the the funding that's needed to take care of kids' food for five weeks at a time, five teenagers eating at a time, and, uh, I mean, funding the program in general. Is that the nature of nonprofit, or what's – how can well, how can we figure that out? Things
1: um, at work. I think there's a piece of it that's the nature of nonprofit is – um. Well, you know, I don't know. There's, there's, kind of um, common beliefs about nonprofit that to do nonprofit work you have to struggle excessively. Mm-hmm. I'm not so sure that that's necessarily true. But mm-hmm. being such a small um, agency, you know, just Tara and I, and now finally kind of putting a board together, um, we don't have time to write the grants to get even even to write a grant to get a grant writer. Okay you know yeah um so we find ourselves so much in survival mode mm-hmm. that um, you need a certain amount of resources in order to be able to shift into thriving and i think we're good at providing that to the kids mm-hmm. um but we need more systemic support um as a program yeah and i think one of the big Issues there is our healthcare system, and how much money goes into um, the institutionalized 1950s version of mental health, mm-hmm. where you stick them in a building and you run some groups and they get to go outside once a week. Um, I mean, I know that they there's some really good work that happens there, but it's it's first of all it's not even research to show that it's effective. Second, it's a ton of uh, you know. Taxpayers' dollars mm-hmm. without any research showing that um, it creates a um, reduction in distress over time. Yeah. Then um, there's there's no money in this in Montana's public health funds that are specifically allocated to evidence-based health care for youth. Mm-hmm. The column is literally empty on the 2018-2019 fiscal analysis. Oh wow. Um, and then it sh- where it ch- shows, you know, um, satisfaction with mental health treatment outcomes, mm-hmm. uh, the U.S. average was about 74%, I think, somewhere in the 70s, at, and Montana's was 60. Oh. So we've got you know, okay. really low outcomes of satisfaction, mm-hmm. we've got some clear solutions, and we've got a lot of bureaucracy in between um, that's supposed to be helping us create access to health care, mm-hmm. um, but it's been, that, that hasn't been my experience yet.
0: Okay. Wow. That sounds like a hard place to be, but what's the general attitude towards wilderness therapy programs? Like you're, you're one of, I'm sure many mental health providers trying to get funding for a program. And so where does wilderness therapy stand compared to something like residential Therapies, or I don't know if private practices get government funding, but yeah. w- what's the reputation right now?
1: Well, that's I think there's two different pieces there. One is that for residential programs, um, you you do kind of automatically as long as you've you checked all the lists about your facility mm-hmm. and the number of hours that you have a therapist interacting with the kids and. Got a pharmacist on staff, whatever. Then, um, then you do just automatically get reimbursed. So, um, Medicaid and DPHHS, well, no, Medicaid specifically is just an insurance company or you know insurance agency in of itself. Okay. So, um, they're not actually looking at effectiveness of treatment. They are just the ones handing out the money, kind of like a bank. Um, isn't necessarily asking how what kind of good work your business is going to do when they give you a business loan. They want to know if you're going to go bankrupt or not, or, you know, oh. and if they're going to lose money on you. Okay. So Medicaid wants to know how we can save them money. They don't necessarily want to know how we're being effective. How, however, it turns out that by being effective, you can save them money. Right. <laughs> so I'm trying to make that um, point. But in terms of thoughts about wilderness therapy, I think that we're making some good headway around the nation with more and more research coming out about it. Yeah. Um, showing the effectiveness and shifting away from this negative stigma where people think about these 1980s boot camps. Okay. You know, the break and build it up. Yeah. Um, I always tell people we don't need to break. Our kids come to us broken down. <laughs> That's why they're here. Yeah. You know. Our job is to do nothing but build them up. Right. And, uh, but between that and then last year, um, luckily a lot of light light was shined on these um, so-called like alternative adolescent residential programs mm-hmm. um, that were the the oversight agency was the same people who owned these companies, and they hadn't done an internal audit in eight years and kids were completing suicide and there's sexual assault that was unreported because they kept it all internal, you know. Mm-hmm. Um but since those had the word alternative in them and because they took kids like snowboarding on weekends, people have somehow looped that in their minds and associated it with outdoor therapy programs. Mm-hmm. There's no, there's no connection. I mean, we're more similar to a school because kids spend more time outside during recess, right? Then they do, you know, at these programs. Uh, so that's kind of a fight that we're trying to make is letting people know we're not altered, we're not, we're not exper- experimental, we're experiential, right? Not experimental. Sorry, it's raining. Oh,
2: so
0: good. Uh.
1: Hey, Pop, do you want to come inside You can get wet? There's a cute woofer. Oh, nice.
0: Uh, Hi, woofer.
1: Come on, Woof. There you go. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. How do you, though? I, I'd be curious about, you know, I've been so in the world of mm-hmm. wilderness therapy and fighting this battle for a while. Yeah. You know, and when you told people you were going to kind of do this kind of work or yeah or anything, what kind of feedback did you get?
0: Um. I got mostly positive feedback from my friends and people in my social group. I didn't really get much inquisitiveness about, I mean, around the whole, about the time that I took the job at Interroads, a lot of the scandals had come out about things that had been going on in the state of Montana, um, and that that wasn't really a question when I got into your program. But I would, yeah, I don't know. From my standpoint, I think what's most important is kind of knowing the details of the program. And I think that's something that you've done really well at Inner Roads is outlining. We are an evidence-based practice program. Um, These are kind of the steps that we take. It's five weeks. And I mean, just for me, understanding what the psych what the process of treatment is for these kids helps me to really get a grasp on what's going on on in these programs. but I don't know mental health seems to be in a really gray area across the board because there's a lot of bad stories that come out there's a lot of um sexual assault stories coming out there's a lot of yeah it's not always positive. But like you're saying, this isn't going to solve itself if nobody's paying attention to what works, if nobody's paying attention to the research, and there's no funding coming out. I mean, if, if our solution is just to put people somewhere where we don't have to acknowledge them and their problems, then maybe we're accomplishing our goal right now. But yeah, I think I think really what the emphasis needs to shift to is, does this work? Why does it work? And what's what is going to happen as a consequence of these people getting the help that they need? I think that we really need to start focusing on that before it starts becoming more and more obvious that our country is full of people that have these underlying issues and traumas that they haven't dealt with because... I mean that's gonna come out one way or another. And if it doesn't come out individually, it's gonna come out in our institutions. So yeah.
1: Yeah, it makes me think what well, um, yeah, in our institutions. So I one of our um kids from a couple of years ago just texted me today, um, to say that he was gonna get a uh Inner Roads tattoo with the name of each of the staff who worked with him. Oh wow. And he's you know, he's nineteen now. But he had been on probation. He had been in and out of Judy, plenty, um, some pretty severe um, stuff going on at home mm-hmm. and socially and um, absolutely unwilling to go when he first came out. And now he goes back and he volunteers for us. Um, he's actually going to help me um, teach some university students awesome. how to do some friction fires later this week. And um, I just think it's really interesting that it stands out. He was one of these one of these kids who he was the dog that you didn't even have to come at him, at, at him to bite. He's already biting you just to keep you away. And
2: mm-hmm.
1: now he wants a tattoo with these staff names because those, those relationships and the belief that the ability to have and be worthy of relationships,
2: I mm-hmm. think is
1: one of the biggest things that comes out of um, the really intimate time that people have in, in a kind of a outdoor adventure scenario.
0: Yeah, I mean, that just kind of speaks to how much change a person can go through in a positive direction. I mean, somebody who's how many years has he been out of the program, yet it's still a fundamental part of his life and something that He's remembering as like a pivotal and positive change.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Speaks volumes. I don't know. Do you approve of the tattoo?
1: <laughs> you know, I. I yeah. I think it's awesome. Yeah. I. The thing about you know the names. Sure, I mean sure. I don't. A lot of those people is never going to yeah. have another interaction with. And so it's more just about the legacy that they've left for him, and I think that that can be. Um, I think that that can be fine. And if that helps him remember those individual connections, I think that's great. Um, yeah. Tattoos are about what they mean for you, right? So, mm-hmm. um, yeah.
0: I definitely agree with that.
1: Yeah, I, uh, I approve.
0: Awesome. You're not on a okay. Or something, but... yeah. yeah, that's a different story okay so before we wrap this up i just want to ask you one extra question what advice would you offer for people trying to make a career out of their passion
2: <laughs>
0: take as long as you want we can edit all of it out <laughs> um,
1: you know when I- couple weeks of Inner road starting as its own thing when we got cut mm. from the parent company um, I was speaking with a a friend who um, I was saying I I'm so ignorant I have mm-hmm. no idea what I'm doing to start you know starting this up or keeping it going and mm-hmm. I know I'm being foolish and she said well you can't like you kind of, you kind of have to not know. Mm-hmm. Um, she said, cause if you did know everything you'd be up against, you wouldn't do it. <laughs> so I thought that that was really interesting. Yeah. Very true that if you told me every obstacle I've been experiencing, I would say absolutely not. But when you take it step by step and you have the support along the way, uh, and you believe in it, then, then you do do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so my my advice would be, um, don't waste your time. Um, don't waste your time trying to plan everything. Yeah. Because it's gonna change anyway. Coronavirus is gonna happen. Whatever is gonna happen. Yeah. Right? Um, just just do it. Like put one foot in front of the other. And find out what you're capable of, rather than sitting back and waiting to find out.
0: Yeah. I think that's great advice. Be present, deal with things as they come. Okay, one more. My friend Cole, who I talked to for the first episode of this podcast, has an interesting take on his approach to work passion, and he divides it in a way that he, he works so that he can take his time for his passion. Um, yeah. What do you What do you think about that? What do you think about the necessity of your work being your passion?
1: I think it is such a privilege to be able to work in your passion. I absolutely do not believe that the two it, that there's any necessary connection. Mm-hmm. Most of the world works so that they can come home from work to whatever it is yeah. that matters to them. Um, right, and I think when people are like feel forced to find a career that they're passionate about, mm-hmm. I think it reduces their opportunities to engage in their passion, and I think it reduces their career opportunities.
0: Oh, that's a really interesting perspective I, I,
1: I yeah, I absolutely support people who you know people who work in the service industry, mm-hmm. people who are, you know, Serving, you know, and working at restaurants have, first of all, I think you can definitely enjoy your job if you have a good agency that doesn't cause burnout, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and hopefully there's more to life than, than what you do um, to pay for the rest of your life.
0: Yeah, no, that's definitely key.
1: I'm lucky, uh, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I found a meme. Um, hang on, I'm going to pull it up real okay. quick. Um, because it's that, that there's that saying, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Mm-hmm. And this meme, it says, do what you love and you'll, and then it crosses out, that never work a day. And it says, and you'll work super fucking hard <laughs> all the time with no separation or any boundaries and also take everything oh, personally. And I thought, yeah, <laughs> that sounds, <laughs> that sounds yeah. really right.
0: That sums it up.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, I work Mm -hmm. every day. And I weekends aren't a thing. Yeah. Um, But that's because, you know, bigger things matter. And I feel like I matter by being part of something bigger than me.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: So it's not necessarily altruistic. It's what gives me a sense of purpose.
0: Okay. A little bit of both. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for taking the time to do this.
1: Yeah, was, yeah. Thanks for talking with me. It's good to good to see your face.
0: Good to see your face. Um. I'm so,
1: so excited for you on this adventure of of podcasting.
0: Thank you. It's been it's been crazy already. I haven't. I mean, I'm barely into it, and it's it's a lot more than I would have expected in a lot of different ways. And I think it's helping me to learn about myself, which is good because that's one of the main goals behind it is learning about myself so
1: totally. and if you knew everything you it would have taken ahead of time maybe you wouldn't have done it
0: yeah that's right, right. yeah i kind of <laughs> just that I, that is actually that goes straight into that advice you just gave because that's something that i've been uh trying to do myself and then that that advice is comes really close to being what um this i'm reading this book zen mind beginner's mind and the uh, the teacher shunru suzuki i mean he points out a very similar thing there's no reason to be anxious about what's going to happen because you can't do anything other than what you're doing right now like you can't be anywhere than right now other than right now so yeah thanks Bree. Where can people go to find out more about Inner Roads or help support you guys through volunteering or donating?
1: Yeah, thanks for asking. I, you can really access all of that through our website. So okay. the, the website is um, one word, InnerRoadsMT, as in Montana, okay. Or um You can also find us on Facebook, and Tara does a fantastic job. I'm keeping folks posted with what we're working on and putting up pictures of what it looks like out there in the field. Um, So you can reach out to us through that, get signed up for our newsletter, uh, volunteering. And we've got, um, Missoula Gives is a big donation thing that's coming up. Okay. Um, A big, amazing thing that we're hoping will help us float our season this year. Um, And we'll also have an Earth Day. We're going to kind of launch it on Earth Day, which is
0: coming up. Oh, awesome. Yeah, and you guys throw some very cool fundraisers when it's not when it's not COVID season.
1: Not yeah. 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 Looking forward to doing that doing that again.
0: Mm-hmm. Awesome. Thank you, Bree. Yeah, thanks, Stephen. Take we'll care. Catch you soon. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to learn more about Inner Roads, visit their website. Find them on Instagram at Inner Roads. Inner Roads is really doing some great work. If you're based in Missoula, they often need volunteers. And of course, donations are always welcome. If you want to support the podcast, you can do so by recommending it to a friend or someone that you think may be interested. You can rate and review it in your podcast app, or you can donate at the tip jar at the bottom of the show notes. That's it. Thanks, everybody we <sharp inhale> see